Hello and welcome to the menu, Monocle's food and drink show. I am Markus Hippip. This week we are in Austria to see how the country's chefs, farmers and vintners keep it together. The idea is to bring the best chefs together and also the best Austrian producers. The chefs learn from the producers and the producers and farmers learn from the chefs. Then here in London, top chef John Javier tells us about his new restaurant, The Tent. And we meet one of the world's most revered cocktail gurus, Ryan Chetiawardena, to talk about his latest bar and how the industry has changed in the last decade. That creates opportunities for us to go, what different emotions do we want to tap into? What are the reasons that we might have somebody in the bar that we can cater to specifically? And that's allowed us to expand what we do in these kind of spaces. All that the week's headlines and a dinner soundtrack recommendation too ahead in this episode of The Menu. First today we head to Austria. Koch Campus is a community event for the country's independent farmers, vintners and chefs. That's where they meet, network and exchange knowledge. It takes place several times a year in different regions across the country. This summer it was held in Austria's easternmost province of Burgenland, famous for its wines and gastronomy. Monocle's Alexei Korolev went along to the event. Koch Campus, we, we have started with the Koch Campus in 2013. And the idea is uh, to bring the best chefs together and also the best Austrian producers. That the chefs learn from the producers and the producers uh, and farmers learn from the chefs. Hans Reisetbauer is one of Austria's biggest spirit producers. He's been involved in Koch Campus since day one, first as participant and now as organizer. We want to see how we can also uh, make new ideas, new qualities, and so on. And you need guys uh, that say you what's wrong or also what's right. Mm. And I think the Koch campus is the best thing for this. In the windblown fields outside the town of Frauenkirchen, some 50 kilometers southeast of Vienna, Erich Stokovic showcases his Paradeisa, or tomatoes. He grows and sells dozens of varieties. But that's not his only passion. My name is Priska Stokovic. I'm uh, working and living in Frauenkirchen in Austria. I get to know Erich Stekovic, he's the boss and it is his company in 2015. I'm his second wife, we fell in love and uh, our first project outside of the existing company was Onions. And onions, normally people think there are red onions, there are white onions and brown onions. But that's not the reality, because we have many, many different varieties in Europe. We have many different varieties all over the world. We have eight varieties today. Eleven. Eleven, sorry, yes. Eleven varieties. Which one is your favorite? Two days before we ate um, the sweet of the cream. 
and it is one of the sweetest and, and um, ex most expensive onions in the world. And it only grows in Crimea? No, you, you have to think we have varieties from France, from uh, Germany, and we get the seeds and, and plant it here in Frauenkirchen. And, and so our uh, aim was to get back the varieties in the consciousness of the people. And the best way to do this is uh, to find uh, chefs, which work with the onions, which define the flavor and, and the different flavors of the different varieties. One of them is Paul Ivic, head chef at Tion restaurant in Vienna. So I understand that you're cooking dinner this evening. Are you using any of the ingredients uh, or products that we saw today, the onions, the tomatoes? Yeah, we will make two dishes for dinner and we use one sort of Paradiso, the tomatoes, and the special sort of the onion is the Suze van der Krim. Ah, yeah, the Crimean, yeah. Uh, Crimean onion. It's very important that we have more often this kind of uh, events because we have to give all the people the knowledge we have and to make the people aware how important are variety and biodiversity. So it's, it's very good if there are some chefs and journalists here so we can spread it and I hope it will do something with the people. Although in principle Koch campus is open to the public, it feels more like an industry get-together. Most of those present are friends who have known each other for years. But for organizer Hans Reisetbauer, it's not about making new friends. It's about creating a sense of community and mutual help. On the end of the day, we are, we are working only for quality. We are small producers and we, we can all, the small producers, have a good life. If we can show what we do and, and the chefs also, the idea is to rise up the quality. The chefs want to get more quality, want to see more and the farmers want to do the same. And so it, we have to bring it together. For Monocle in Burgenland, I'm Alexei Korolov. Before this week's headlines, we hear from Australian chef John Javier, who made a name for himself at restaurants Master in Sydney and Happy Paradise in Hong Kong. Here in London, this ex-Noma chef has now opened his latest restaurant, The Tent, to the public on Little Portland Street. And while John Javier has gained attention for his playful take on Chinese food, the new restaurant serves modern Middle Eastern food. John visited Midori House a bit earlier to tell more about his new restaurant. Basically, the owner wanted a place where he could have good food, start the night off like that, and then it turns into a party that sort of goes through really late. And the place is like, it was born before I got there, the idea anyways, and they'd been working on it for about three years. Previous to me, they also had a chef on board, and the creative director also insisted that it was me cooking. And for the longest time, I sort of resisted because I wanted to open up a Chinese restaurant. And eventually they got me down to see the space, and I was like, we can do cool food here, you know? 
And originally, they wanted to do tacos. And <laughs> looking back now and seeing like how far the food has come from that, it just seems so ridiculous. But the kitchen was also set up to make tacos. So when I came in, we had to change everything. It's sort of been a push, and the space is really tight. But people get surprised when they come downstairs and they see the kitchen, how how small it is. But previous to this, I was working in Hong Kong in a tiny kitchen, and I sort of got used to working in a small environment. So we really push it to the most we can do out of that kitchen. What was it about Middle Eastern style street food that attracted you? Why did you want to go and prepare that kind of food? Well, one because if I was to open up a Chinese restaurant here in London, it would be conflict of interest. I couldn't do the food I would do there at both restaurants if they were right near each other. And two, the owners are Middle Eastern, so for me it made complete sense. I was like, "Why are you guys doing tacos? We should be doing something that resonates with you guys." What is it like for a chef like you to go and prepare different kind of food? Do you feel like it was more? It was a challenge, a different challenge from what you've done before. Was it natural? This time around, it was actually not that bad because I went from working at you know Momofuku and Key and doing sort of Western food, and then going into like opening up a Chinese restaurant, which was like completely different. And then now doing Middle Eastern food, I've learned to apply these techniques and flavors that have sort of traveled with me in my journey. And sort of hide that within Middle Eastern food, not so much fusion per se of flavors, but sort of just using my strengths in other cuisines to pronounce what's good in Middle Eastern food. Is this something that comes with being a top chef that you can transfer those skills from one type of cuisine to another? I mean, I guess <laughs> I don't know about top chef, but it does take a lot of restraint to apply other flavors to a very traditional cuisine, because. You don't want to do something that's so obviously not a part of the cuisine that it just becomes this abomination. You know, you want to do it with some sort of elegance where it heightens the flavors of the dish without being obvious that it's in there. Like our tomatoes dish, for example, just looking at it, it looks like a simple tomato salad, but underneath it's a puree of silken tofu mixed with feta, just so it gets the consistency but not the flavor of the tofu. And then the tomatoes are dressed with lemon juice, yuzu kosho, and kombu flavored soy sauce to heighten the flavor of a ripe tomato, not so that it tastes like tomatoes with soy sauce. And then when you add those all together with the bulgur and the olives, there's no doubt that it's a Middle Eastern salad. But you can't just go, oh, that's Asian, because it it doesn't taste Asian. It tastes Middle Eastern. Tell me more about the food you serve over there. Obviously, the menu is going to keep on changing. But what are your favorites at the moment? My favorites at the moment is.、Uh, Probably the、uh, schnitzel. A lot of people look at it and go, "Oh, a schnitzel isn't Middle Eastern," but it totally is. In Israel, it's like very common food. Obviously, they do it with chicken instead of pork. For us, we've done it very simply with、uh, mayonnaise underneath with katsuobushi. It's just the most simple thing. But I think you know, going to a restaurant and the chef has the confidence to do something that's very refined and without much fluff going on. It's really special. Like you can go there and you can eat that every time you're there and not get sick of it. You mentioned the confidence. I think it's interesting. Do you ever feel like when you are doing something like this, challenging yourself, you make yourself a bit more vulnerable at the same time because it may be easier for people to criticize something you may not have been doing that much before. I mean, definitely at the start, I was really unsure, you know, which is why we did more traditional dishes. We did tartig. We tried to stick really by the books. I'd always have tastings with the owners, and I'd be like, "What do you think? Like, does this taste right?" And then now it's like I've learned to trust myself and just be like, "You know what? I can cook the basics. There's no reason why I can't see where this goes." 
John, it's interesting, your background. You've been working, for example, in Copenhagen, obviously. You mentioned Noma. You were the chef-owner at Master in Sydney. You moved to Hong Kong later. You moved to London some years ago. When you think about your international experience, how much has it given to you? Do you think you could have stayed, for example, in Australia and be the same kind of a chef you are now with the same skill set? Definitely not. You know, cooking in Australia, and I've found this with a lot of places, when chefs congregate in certain cities or areas, whether it be Sydney, East London, Copenhagen, because they all hang out together, they all eat together, they all eat at each other's restaurants, all the food tends to end up being quite similar whether in presentation or taste or technique. So traveling around and getting to see different places and what people are doing sort of allows me to like step away and have my own opinion about how I should plate something or how I should cook something. I guess that's something that made me grow in confidence is that I don't need to know what's right or what's wrong because Going from Western food to Chinese food, everything is wrong. <laughs> so so now it doesn't matter. It's just whatever feels right to me. You talk about being surrounded with other chefs and eating at each other's restaurants and kind of ending up doing the same things. Does that mean that you may decide to leave London at one point and continue elsewhere to get more influences and more inspiration? No, you know, actually, like, since being in London, I've been able to travel a lot. Whereas when I was living in Sydney, it was like you'd travel once a year. But... I've made London home, I just got married, opened the restaurant, plans of opening more restaurants, whether they're going to be in London or in other cities, we'll see. But for the unforeseeable future, London's home. It's always interesting to speak to chefs who are launching new places, because when you open a new restaurant, that kind of gives your customers an idea of the hospitality, the type of hospitality you appreciate and what your ideals are. How would you describe that? What do you think is good hospitality? What is it you want to offer? I think it's being able to go somewhere more than once a week. Going there and feeling like you're going there to support your friends. Not like you're going there as a customer, but you're going there as a guest. And when you break that barrier with your customers of them wanting to not just come and eat, but they want to come and see you, That's when, you know, you struck gold with the restaurant. What does that mean in practice? You won't be just working in the kitchen. You will also go and meet the customers. <laughs> oh, like, you know, me and the chefs, we always come out on the floor. We drop dishes off. It's just sort of something I learned from Momofuku and Noma. And it's sort of breaking that fourth wall between the customers and the, the chefs. I don't mean I'm not going to be in the kitchen. I'm, of course, I'm going to be in the kitchen. But it's always nice to pop up and say hi. What kind of plans do you have for the future then? I am working on relaunching Master. I can officially say that. I can't say where. Okay, I was just going to ask for more details. (laughs) Unfortunately, I can't at this time. But we're looking at mid to late next year. This program has a fair number of people who are maybe taking the first steps of their careers in in hospitality. What kind of tips could you give for people who want to become successful chefs, for example? I would say, like, just go out there and not be scared to fail. Go and work at the best restaurants. Try not to get fired. (laughs) You know, make How how close to that have you been yourself? (laughs) Uh, I've actually never been fired. But I've been broke. <laughs> I think, you know, when you're learning to start, don't worry about the pay. Worry about working in the best restaurant. The harder it is, the more you're going to take out of it. And I never imagined cooking would take me to where it's taken me. I grew up in the suburbs in Australia and Sydney. And uh, who would have thought I would have seen the things I have or traveled and opened up restaurants. And, you know, it's a crazy job and it demands crazy people. <laughs> but the rewards are endless.
John Javier there. His new restaurant, The Tent, at the end of the universe, is open at 17 Little Portland Street in London. Let's next continue with this week's food and drink headlines. Here is Monocle's Lillian Fawcett. Papua New Guinea's Prime Minister has appointed ministers for its biggest agricultural exports, coffee and palm oil. Both positions are believed to be world firsts and are a bid by PM James Marape to grow two of the country's key industries. Coffee accounts for 6% of Papua New Guinea's GDP, but has seen a fall in its global market share in recent years. A new coffee chain has taken over Starbucks branches in Russia after the company pulled out of the country amid the invasion of Ukraine. A restaurateur and a pro-Putin rapper are behind the new venture, Stars Coffee. The launch is the latest rebranding of a major Western chain in Russia, following a similar move for McDonald's in June. Budget supermarket Lidl has announced it will sell fruit and vegetables that are stunted because of the drought in its UK stores. The company hopes to support farmers and avoid food waste by selling produce that is smaller than usual. Britain has seen an unprecedented heatwave and drought this summer, affecting food prices and supply. Mealworm cooked with sugar produces a high-protein meat-like flavouring, according to researchers in South Korea. Insects have long been touted as a more environmentally friendly alternative to traditional meat options, but have failed to appeal to Western consumers. The team of scientists at Wonkwang University hope using the larvae as flavouring will help it take off in Europe and North America. Thanks Lillian. You are listening to Monocle 24. Ryan Chetty Awardana, or Mr. Lion as he calls himself, is a familiar voice for regular listeners of this programme. He has been ranked the best bartender in the world and his London bar lioness recently won the title of the best bar in the world at the Spirited Awards in New Orleans. Chetty Awardana's latest bar, Seed Library, opened in London's Shoreditch earlier this year. I met him to discuss how the cocktail industry has changed since he opened his first bar almost a decade ago and how his new bar reflects the way his thinking has evolved over the years. Seed Library is, it is our return to London, East London, but it's very much about what I figured people needed in, in the current day. So it's very timely, as well as being about a centre place. So it's a very stripped back, very comfortable, very easy bar. It's kind of atypical to us as a cocktail bar. You know, it's not the usual kind of high concept, very cocktail focused as a space it's much more about a general sense of feeling so what we have is is something that really embraces natural forms so you can feel that in the space it's all about kind of like stripping back and thinking about a bit of that idea of something that feels quite organic and and kind of natural but it's really about embracing kind of imperfection how things change the fact that nature varies the fact that there are things that will kind of flux and change over time and reflect a multitude of different influences but there's a real beauty to that so it's really about celebrating that in not only the decor and the drinks but the music and you know the even the service that we bring is all about having something that's got like a soft fuzziness to it that's the way i describe it what does that mean in practice tell me more about the service and the drinks so in terms of the drinks it's a focus not just on cocktails so we're looking at things that have a maker's touch to them. So you can feel that somebody has made a choice about what they want to represent. So 
I suppose in the classical wine sense, that's terroir about how do you reflect that. But it's it's about the human choices that come through. You know, do you want to, if you're doing a gin, what side of juniper do you want to represent? And do you want to like over polish it until it's just one singular flavor? Or do you want to have that range of things that you get from natural products? So the spirits, beer, wine, sake, anything that's got that kind of softness to it that isn't about like, a very, I suppose, we contrasted with White Lion, which was almost a very digital approach of going, how do we dial into a specific flavor, trim off other things and represent something in our, our chosen manner? This is about going, well, let's strip back to those origin points. Let's celebrate those flavors at their heart. And that's great produce. It's great producers. It's an amazing flavor. But let's not over polish it as we build that out. So the drinks all have a softness to them. There is a almost a sense of variance but it's like this ultra small batch kind of approach you know what does it mean when you know we have something we can get a tiny bit of produce it'll be on for a period of time and then it's gone you know and i think there's a a wonderful thing in that that i think reflects what we need as people at the moment you know the understanding where our food has come from but also liking the idea that it's not too plasticized and too like over polished you mentioned White Lion over there. That was the first bar of yours in London. You opened about, what, nine years ago. Yeah. I'm wondering, when you think about the way you think about hospitality and great cocktails and the industry, how has all that changed over the years? Oh, so much has changed. As you say, it's pushing on. I mean, I've been working in the industry for two decades and seeing how much things have changed over that time is, is huge. And I think the beauty of food and drink, but particularly in such a diverse kind of city as London, is it's all about the choices you're you're making to reflect kind of a hospitality. We talked about Rome before where, you know, because there is this different dynamic, some people will manifest that as a very high energy space. Some will do it in a much more kind of classical manner. And what I think there is now is a bit of a, there's a wider range, but there's also a little bit of a crossover, you know, a very classical five-star place will have elements of fun and kind of lightness to them that you might expect in a out of a small independent bar or even a dive bar. You know, we talked about this in when we did a lot of work around, you know, some of those big topics like bottling, pre-batching or bottling cocktails, sustainability, all those things. They no longer fall into one style of venue. They kind of traverse the whole gamut. And I think that's what's kind of like a wonderful change to see. But I think there's also been a change from a human point of view. The number of people that will go visit a cocktail bar has changed hugely over the last 10 years. You know, a cocktail is now part of the every person's dining experience. You know, they'll have a, you know, a martini or a Negroni before they go out, you know, as an an aperitif. They'll catch up with friends in a different manner alongside the rest of their evening. And I think that was something that was very part of US drinking culture, whereas now I think it's very universal. So it's meant that people, the reasons that people are coming to a bar and the type of people that are coming to a bar is so different. And that creates opportunities for us as creators to go what different emotions do we want to tap into what are the reasons that we might have somebody in the bar that we can cater to specifically and that's allowed us to expand what we do in these kind of spaces have your own ideals changed when you think about what you did in 2013 14 or 15 maybe do you think well I maybe should have done that differently I don't know if it's that I would have done things differently, but my my outlook has certainly changed. I think Seed Library is a very good reflection of that. You know, for so long, we tried to challenge things within the world of food and drink. You know, it would be sustainability, the role of hospitality. It would be where do we get ingredients from? What within nature can we use outside of those established ingredients? 
And over those years, we tried to control a lot because we were trying to kick off discussions. We were trying to kind of spur on different movements within the world of food and drink. And I think when it came to reflecting, and a lot of this was accelerated by the pandemic, it was kind of going, well, actually, there is a beauty to letting go and actually understanding what we don't know. And, you know, I think that was a major thing around opening seed library we were we were thinking about our bias even from a western point of view you know the styles of ingredients we use the things that have been kind of central to kind of cocktails it was kind of going you know actually we should look to other sources like we should purposefully embrace a completely different perspective because that gives us new sets of flavors it gives us new stories it allows us to to kind of shed some of that almost pigeonholing that we've created for ourselves what have you learned as an entrepreneur over the years I think there's been a, a number of lessons. And I think one of the key ones for me is I've always understood that it's all about people. And I think as a business, we always tried to find ways of embracing what people were interested in. What, what is their particular passion? How can we help nurture that, grow that, help them apply it in different ways? But I think the thing that I learned from an almost business point of view is not only how much people will and should be able to shape what you do as a business. You know, I think that was something I was really keen to do. And I was amazed by, you know, the response, all the people that have been part of the company have put an indelible mark on what we do as a group. But I think the key learning to me was how much people in general want to help. You know, I think there is a a real, like when you're an entrepreneur, when you're doing things, you you almost feel like you're by yourself and you have to find out how to do something in a particular way. You have to work out the solution to those problems. And, you know, of course, you lean on the teams that are around you, but there's actually a real beauty in the fact that in general, you can go to other parties and you can talk about what you're doing. And as long as it's genuine and you're not just asking for freebies off people, people are so willing to help. And it's a really wonderful thing to kind of recognize when you when you are starting out a business or really when you're just interacting with the world. You know, people are very very generous. And I think it's within human nature. And it's, this isn't often talked about in, you know, when you read the news or you see all the bad things going on, but people have a propensity to help. And, you know, I think when you start to kind of recognize that from a business point of view, which seems a very scary world, it seems a very cold and isolating world. But as soon as you realize that different industries, there can be wonderful crossovers, there's these amazing bridges that can come from just human conversation. Now, we obviously have an international listenership on Monocle24, and you talked about how people are willing to help. So I'm wondering, would you like to launch new bars anywhere else in the world so that these listeners could maybe help you? Oh, I mean, it's almost a problem that every time I travel, I'm inspired by kind of where I get to. And you, you see a new approach to hospitality or just the way that people gather. And it's, it's a wonderful thing to be inspired by, but it's an infectious thing. So often I'll go somewhere and I'll be like, well, this is magical. I want to be part of this. And and having a venue is obviously a, a wonderful way to kind of bring that to life. So I think there's kind of three aspects that have always been hugely inspiring to me. It's the people, it's the produce that is part of a place, but it's also the kind of approach to kind of hospitality or the scene that's going on there. And that's obviously a very dynamic thing. Those things evolve and change. But, you know, you see some of those ancient traditions kind of carry through to the modern day as part of that food and drink culture. So, you know, Mexico City, Tokyo, Sydney, they've always blown my mind in terms of like some of the things I've been able to try, the people I've been able to meet and, you know, just this graciousness in their hospitality. They've always appealed to me. I think, you know, that's something where every time I go there, I'm like, oh my God, I just want to spend more time here and eat everything and, you know, talk to more people about what's going on. 
But I think for our approach, the practicality of that is quite difficult. The way that we operate venues, we wouldn't be able to give the time that we need to be able to be in those spaces. So that same inspiration comes when I'm in Europe or in the States and you think about how geographically close some of these cities are and you just jump into a new, totally different world each time you travel between them. You know, I was in Denmark recently and I went from Copenhagen to Billund and, you know, it's fine. It's not that big a distance between the spaces, but completely different approaches. And it's like you're trying different things, you're meeting different people and you're like, wow, this is wonderful. And it's the same thing in the US. You know, we have the bar in DC and it's a, a wonderful, real embrace of that as a space. You go just up the road to you know Maryland or to Boston, Philly or New York, and you're just almost jumping into totally different worlds. And that will forever be inspiring to me. It'll be something that if time wasn't a limiting factor, I would, you know, the energy part of it is not something that's ever going to stop me because I find it so inspiring each time I'm in those spaces. You know, the, the difficulty is going, well, it's not that I wouldn't want to open spaces. I want to open a space everywhere because, you know, if you could find the right partners, it would be such a wonderful thing to do. Ryan Chetia-Wardner there, and his Barseed library is open in London, Shoreditch. And that's all for this edition of The Menu. Remember that we are back with a new episode again on Friday at 2000 London time. That's at midday if you're listening in Los Angeles. Meanwhile, do check out our menu spin-off show Food Neighbourhoods for great recipes. And obviously you will also find many reports on great hospitality from the brand new edition of Monocle magazine. I am Markus Hippi. Our studio engineer was David Stevens. Once again, we finish this programme with a dinner soundtrack recommendation. Here are Elton John and Britney Spears with Hold Me Closer. Thanks for listening.